I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Corey. He has OCD. Let's talk about it. We are very excited to be sitting down with our new friend, Corey Hirsch. We have been trying to put this recording together for a while. We're finally getting to sit down with Corey. Uh, Corey is a, a former NHL goalie and a, um, a an mental, Olympian and an, an Olympian and a mental health advocate and co-host of the Players Tribune podcast called Blindsided. And uh, we're going to be sitting down with Corey today to talk about um, uh, a book that he recently published in October called The Save of My Life, My Journey Out of the Dark. And, uh, and we're, we're excited to dive into this. We're, we're, uh, we're big fans of talking about mental health. Um, we obviously, we're all Canadians. We've played hockey. <laughs> we're very much in the know on hockey. Uh, and, hockey fans uh, as well, hockey, for sure. And hockey fans <laughs> as well. So we're excited to be sitting down with you, Corey. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners uh, and tell us all about the book and uh, and yourself and, and the Coles notes of your journey. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, well, uh, you know, I played professional hockey, played for New York Rangers, Vancouver, uh, Dallas, Washington. How much time do we have? How many? <laughs> we got lots of time. <laughs> yeah. No, I grew up in, I grew up in uh, Calgary, Alberta. Uh, played most of my games in Vancouver, but uh, I was probably 21 years old when, when I kind of just um, something I describe it as something in my brain just kind of broke and OCD. I, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, but OCD uh, it's a little bit different than some other anxiety uh, disorders in the sense that I could tell you the time, place, where I was, what happened when things just kind of disconnected. And, um, you know, was with the New York Rangers on a Stanley Cup run, um, just really struggling with debilitating panic attacks and and depression, but also trying to hide it, right? Because the NHL and and you couldn't have a goalie that had a mental health issue, heaven forbid, right? I mean, back then, massive stigma. But, uh, you know, uh, from there, um, you know, suicide attempt at one point. Um, while I was, you know, in the throes of trying to make the National Hockey League. So I had an Olympic silver medal, I drank out of the Stanley Cup with the Rangers, and here I was, you know, not wanting to go on anymore, not wanting to live. Um, but unsuccessfully, of course, as I'm here, thank goodness. So, mm-hmm. um, but from there, you know, just it's created to Vancouver, kept trying to hide, you know, some of my mental health issues from my teammates. Uh, and I do say this, guys, I say, you know, for people that think that they're meant people with mental health issues are weak or or, you know, people that are out there listening that, you know, feeling weak or less than everybody else because they're struggling. Well, 
um, without sounding arrogant or whatever. I mean, I made the NHL with, with a, an extremely debilitating mental health issue. So mm-hmm. um, don't call me weak or, or other people, Michael Phelps, 23 gold medals. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the message I try to get across, but eventually I went and got help um, finally. And basically it saved my life. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, it probably derailed my NHL career, but I had to go get help. And once I did, um, took me a while to get help from there. Um, and, you know, 20 years later, my article comes on the Players' Tribune of, of all my struggles when I was with the National Hockey League. And that article, guys, it hit, I think it had 2 million hits in under an hour, right? Wow. So, you know, which is like up there with LeBron James and and Tiger Woods, you know, just articles of guys. And here's Corey Hirsch from Calgary, Alberta, right? And <laughs> his article's got the same. So that kind of struck a nerve. So those are kind of the Coles notes of, of you know, what happened with my story. Um, it's a lot more in detail, obviously in the book, mm-hmm. uh, but the book isn't really a hockey book. You know, everyone thinks, uh, you know, people think it's a sports and hockey book, but it's, a uh, um, it's more a mental health book with hockey stories in it. You know, that's really just a portion of my life. It's the mental health portion that's, um, got me to where I am today and, and, uh, on your podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, well, congratulations on, yeah. congratulations on the journey that you've, you've been on. Um, something that you said, immediately stood out to me that that you could pinpoint the moment when you were 21 years old that as you put it um, something in your brain just sort of broke can you walk us through that experience and what that was like yeah yeah so no I was out with some friends um, and uh, it was the second round of the playoffs and I was out with some guys and I'm standing I'm just standing having a beer at a, at a bar with uh, other guys other teammates and all of a sudden I just started getting these repetitive dark thoughts like and I can I can I couldn't explain why they were there and um the best way I can explain OCD is like this is so if you're driving your car one down one lane road right cars are coming one way you're going the other way and you we've all had that little thought of well what if I turn my car into the other lane right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well it's what if thought is an OCD thought well a normal brain would go oh that's just a silly thought and you'd go on with your day and you, you wouldn't even think about it again my brain, I would think about why I had that thought, what that thought means. Is it is is that going to happen? Oh, my God, what if that happened? There'd be c- catastrophe and carnage. And I would go home and I would ruminate on it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because I would never want that to happen. I would never want to hurt anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And then to the point where I would just stop driving the car, right, to avoid a catastrophe that was never going to happen in the first place, because it's just a thought. And people with OCD... A thought, we pay too much attention to a thought, right? Because we would we would never want something like that to happen. Um, that's the best way I can describe OCD. So it's almost like that night where something just disconnected and everything just started repeating over and over again. You know, thoughts mm-hmm. like that where to the point where it becomes debilitating, where you yeah. can't do anything without thinking about that. You spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week trying to figure it out. This might be a, a crazy question given the the context that you just gave us on that, but uh, I'm curious, like obviously you're overthinking to some extent these intrusive thoughts. Um, like what, what were, what was going through your head? Because obviously you knew that this was different that this hadn't happened before and you're sort of overthinking it so like what is the thought process around like why am I having these things like what this doesn't make sense did you realize that like this was sort of a mental health issue that was happening I I didn't know I I didn't know what what the hell it was all I knew was is that I I, it was it was there was something broke like something was wrong Mm -hmm. because 
Um, but OCD keeps you in the throes of confusion. So, I mean, it's in the book and I'll tell you right now, it took me a long time to talk about the content because the content is typically, uh, for someone like me, it's, 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 um, it's, there's a lot of shame attached to it and a lot of everything. And it's what keeps people with OCD. So my OCD manifests in, in, uh, what's called, uh, sexual intrusive thoughts. So when I, when it first started, I thought that, um, I was gay and I'm, I'm not, I'm straight, but um, the best way to describe that is, is that your irrational brain is telling you one thing, your irrational brain is, is telling you another. And it has nothing to do with being homophobic or anything like that. It's just that your brain's telling you something that isn't true. And so you end up fighting with it. And the other side of it was, so then it morphs into other things. So then for me, it morphed into uh, having HIV. Well, I mean, back in the early 90s, that was a death sentence, right? right so yeah. having that was... Um, and, and so my brain is trying to tell me that, uh, you know, I was gay and then I had HIV and that, you know, just by touching people, I was giving them HIV and I was killing everybody. Right. Like, wow. It just was, like a, just stuff, spiral. I mean, like, irrational, bizarre. Yeah. Right. So you start thinking of all the ways you could have gotten it. And I, and I, there was no, I mean, I was, I wasn't even sleeping with anybody or anything like, so there was no way, but, um, it would be like, if I touched a door handle, uh, I would think that, you know, what if there was blood on that door handle and it would be like, oh, oh how, what did I get? You know, and then say I went and, and, and hugged somebody. I would, my brain would start telling me you just gave, even though I knew that that's not a true irrational thought. Mm -hmm. Right. So then it's an epic fight in your brain. And that's it's really difficult to explain and it's really difficult to understand. But it's um, the content. Some people have harm thoughts where. Um, you know, they, they feel like they're going to be, you know, we've all heard of the lady that, that feels like she's going to harm her baby. She has a new baby. Mm -hmm. Um, that's based on OCD too. Right. So they, they, they struggle to take care of their baby. Well, this woman would never, ever hurt their baby, but their brain is telling them something different and it's repeating over and over and over again. That's the best way I can describe OCD. I mean, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good way of describing it. And, and I, I can imagine how debilitating, that would be the thing that strikes me again is like you're in the middle of a playoff run in playing in the NHL. And I I couldn't imagine doing like a a regular job that, you know, people aren't <laughs> there's not thousands of people watching you do your job. Was it was it like difficult to try to hide what you were going through at that time? Oh yeah. Uh well, I mean you become you can't see it on your face, right? So you become a master at at um I don't call it lying because you're trying to survive, but you become a master at making excuses, right? Why, why you couldn't make that dinner? Why, you know, I miss friends' weddings and stuff. And it was mainly because I didn't, I couldn't be, I didn't want people to see me if I was in a, right? Mm -hmm. So in front of your teammates, I would go to the rink. Um, I would try to get there the very last minute and then leave as soon as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So what does that look like as a teammate? Well, you look mm -hmm. like an asshole, mm -hmm. right? You look right. like a bad team guy that you don't care that you don't put any of the work in when it's exactly the opposite, right? You're just trying to survive every day, late for meetings, late for practices. Cause when you're always trying to get there at the last minute, well, what happens, right? Yeah, you're, right. You're gonna be late. So, so I look more like a bad teammate than mm -hmm. somebody that was struggling with mental health issues. And the article in the player's tribune came out. It was almost an apology to a lot of my older my teammates for this is why I was the way I was, right? Like, um, right. and a lot of guys, you know, everybody kind of rallied around me. I, I they're like, I'm so sorry you were going through this, right? Um, 
And that yeah, that's what that's what ends up happening. You become you become a master of making excuses, trying to hide stuff. I think you uh, I think you framed it. I think you framed OCD, your experience with OCD specifically, in a in a really in a really um, um, in a really resonant way because I think I, I I know the average person can 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 empathize with an intrusive thought. I think that I don't know if there's anybody out there that 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 doesn't go, oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean by an intrusive thought, and then you take your OCD experience and go, yes, that, and then. But the, I can't. The tap doesn't turn off. The, the 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 it goes from this thought to the next thought to the next thought, and it spirals into it spirals from one thought that we might all deal with at some point in our lives, and then that spirals out into this into this thing that has these you know far rippling effects. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was walking over to the studio was um, you know I, I played I played hockey I played hockey growing up I I I played. Uh, Junior A was the the highest level that I played, and I had a lot of a lot of teammates and a lot of a lot of goalies. And I want to kind of differentiate between this. I think you've done a good job of this already, but I wanted to differentiate between OCD as it presents in reality versus what the stereotype um, or like the pop culture understanding of what OCD is, which people sort of like flippantly reference, you know, I, 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 I have this, I have this strange habit that I have to do. And I'm so OCD about that. Like, you know, that's a common phrase that people use and, and goalies in particular in hockey, <clears throat> they tend to get a, a reputation of being, you know, very quirky and having Weird. like kind of strange, <laughs> strange rituals and like superstitious or, I mean, yeah, know. I mean like everybody in hockey is superstitious, but like, you know, it seemed like goalies always had like a little bit, a little bit more of a strangeness to them. Um, and, and, and I feel like, I feel like, I feel like OC, I feel like people would, people look at goalies and think that all goalies have, have OCD because they're, because they have these, they, because, because goalies tend to be quirky. I mean, that's a stereotype, but it's, it tends in my experience, it tends to be, Sort of true. Like, how do you how do you kind of view how do you view that understanding of like the the typical goalie versus versus like what OCD really is? Like, did you face any yeah. of that? Do people think like, oh, you're just a, you're a goalie, you're weird? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that a lot, and I and I get people that ask me, and, and there's this there's a lot to that question, and I'll get through it. But um, a lot of people ask me if hockey did this to me, and I and I say this to them: hockey saved my life. Hockey gave me the skills of resilience, of being able to keep going in, in through tough times, being able to face adversity, being able to have the strength to keep going when I didn't want to go on, right? So hockey is a great game. Today we have some issues in hockey, but it's not the game that's the problem. It's it's, it's a small amount of people that have taken advantage of, of the game and have done some really awful things. So um, hockey is a great game and, I, and I'll say that till the day I die. I know it, it has nothing to do with hockey. I'm, I'm pretty genetically disposed to some of this, uh, and others can be some of my environment and stress, but, um, hockey is a great game. Now, as far as, as, um, you know, the rituals and all that stuff with goalies, the difference between OCD and normal rituals is most of my friends that have OCD have tried to take their own life at some point. Or they know somebody that has been successful at it. And that doesn't mean just because you have OCD, you're going to take your own trying to. No. Um, the reason that that has happened is, is because, you know, undiagnosed OCD can lead to 
um, some really obviously tough times for people. So me getting OCD, it's like getting hit with a taser gun and a tsunami of anxiety every time I have one of those thoughts, right? Now, yeah, we all have little quirks and little rituals and all that. So when someone's cleaning their house and they go, oh, I'm so OCD, I'm clean. Well, has, does it take you five hours to leave your house because there's a speck of dirt, dirt in the corner and you can't leave because you keep thinking that it's still there and, and you know, some sort of, you know, or there's something in the fridge that's old, somebody's going to eat it and die from it, and you can't leave the house for four or five hours, that's OCD, right? Mm-hmm. Not because you're clean. Yeah. Being clean is not OCD, right? Yeah. So I, I have bigger fish to fry rather than worrying about, you know, people using terminology and all that. It's yeah. fine, whatever. Um, but like I said, you know, it's one of the top 10 most debilitating illnesses in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh but here's the other side of it that people don't know is, is that it's highly, highly treatable. It's just very tricky to diagnose and understand. Um, so that's what I say to, you know, to people that think they're OCD. Um, but you know what? It, one of the things, too, is I tell people, go see someone and get OCD ruled out if you're struggling with a mental health issue because it's very misdiagnosed. But the beauty of it is, is if you're out there and you're listening and you're struggling, OCD is very, very treatable. It'll never mm-hmm. go away. Uh, but I mean, I have a great life, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I really do. So, um, you know, all the things that I've been able to accomplish with OCD, it, it hasn't helped me back. That's for sure. And you, you've lived, you, you've, so you, this, this kind of all happens in the, in the, in the, um, in the mid late nineties. Is that correct? Like, or this is early, yeah, this is early 90s. Yeah, this is probably 93-ish to 97-ish, somewhere and, around there, 94. To, and then, and then you know, you you play until the early 2000s, and now we're, and now, you know, the, then, then obviously we, we come through probably the 2010 to 2020 era is sort of, I feel like, demarcated by a pretty noticeable shift in terms of like how the public is starting to view mental health and, um, you know, n- not saying that, not saying that we're where we need to be, but that we've we've started to go in the right direction of talking about it, understanding it more, understanding it societally, understanding that most people are going through something or will go through something with their mental health that they need that they need help with, whether that's professional help or um, like familial support or, or community support. Like, how do you see? that shift of this sort of all starting in the nineties where the conversation is very different and you're probably, if your feeling of it is different, your understanding of it is different to how things have to, to the next 20 years and how that conversation has shifted. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot better, but there still is a lot of stigma out there. And, and, you know, a lot of our media, a lot of our movies and that don't help. Right. And every time you hear of a mass shooting, you think, Oh, mental health issues. Well, you know, that's, that's beyond mental health issues. Mm. Most people with mental health issues I know are the kindest, um, most empathetic people you'll ever meet. Um, But as far as, you know, we're we're going in the right direction, but we're still not there. Right now, the issue is is that we have people reaching out for help and they're having to wait six months, right? They're having to wait a year. And that's that's too long. Like you're white knuckling it through something and you you can't get an appointment for three months and you don't know where to go. Uh, That's the problem. So I, I would love to see our government give more grants uh, you know, more, more um, scholarship opportunities to, to people that want to go into psychiatry and psychology. I think that's where the change will happen is, is that we need to encourage our youth to go into psychology, psychiatry, uh, more research for medications, all, all those things. So that's where I think change is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to get it in our schools. We, I mean, yeah. we really do. So, you know, for me, 
I spent three years hiding, like, it's, uh, you know, and I'll say it like this. So I finally get diagnosed. It's 10 years to find out, find the proper help for me, which is too long, right? Whoa. I'm still white knuckling it for the next 10 years. And then I did find somebody, though, finally. And then it's 10, <laughs> 10 years, you know, for my article to come on the Players' Tribune. That's 20 years when it should have been got sick, you know? Oh, shit, this is uh, something going on in my head. Go see the doctor. Yeah, it's cool to go see the doctor. Doctor refers me to a psychologist. Get diagnosed. I'm on my way within a few months, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, I'm talking it's 20 years. Yeah. So why was I not taught this stuff in high school? Why, why, why was this information withheld from me? It almost killed me. I'll give you an example. So my daughter, one of my daughters, uh, she struggled with OCD because uh, some of it's genetic. But we always had that conversation in our home mental health and all that right so i always said hey you got some funky going in your brain come talk to me so when she's about 15 she comes to me dad you know yeah something's off take her to the psychologist she gets diagnosed with ocd she'll never get to that place that i did yeah, where i right. wanted to end my own life <clears throat> yeah. because we she came to me said uh, psychologist get some help right like that's what it should mm. be and you cool. laid the framework yeah. you like you lay the groundwork for that as a parent to, 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 to put that out there. And I think that's a really important part of it is, is, is parents being, being in the know to say, Hey, when this happens, you know, just like we do for kids in a lot of different ways for other things to go, Hey, come talk to me if this thing's going on. Just to touch on the, uh, on like the stigma, the stigma aspect of it, um, that, that hap that occurs like amongst the stigma that occurs whether it's amongst um, like internally in the team or in the league and like a place where just as an example to, sh to, to say like where we have not done nearly enough in on this topic elsewhere um, in Canada, we, Brian and I were, were, were with a friend this summer um, who is a pilot in the military and he was telling us about, you know, pilots have extreme, they, they you know, they they have a very stressful job. They're flying, multi-million dollar uh, vehicles through the air at enormous speeds. And, and there's a high stress to that. And he was basically saying, you know, if you ever, even just for maintenance, even just to go and say, hey, I just want to stay on top of my mental health and see somebody, you're not going to fly. Yeah. And, they, no, and they'll, just take yeah. Your, they'll just take your wings away for that. And I was astonished to hear that. And just to, to, then you pull at that thread a little bit and you go, okay, well, that person's not going to go see somebody. So now think about like, okay, you got, then you got a person who is, who is in this extreme stressful environment in a, in a very physically dangerous environment that is not able to seek help if they have something that is like really, really needs attention. And they are not going to go and seek that help because they know it's going to take away the thing that they love. And then the problem gets exasperated. And just like a, just an example of how this stigma is like still very much so embedded in, mm -hmm. in systems and institutions today that in, in, a, in a setting where you really need, like just from an occupational perspective, you need those people to be of the most sound, you want those people to be the, of the most sound mind they could possibly be with the most resources available to them. I mean, to tie that into sports directly too, um, you know, even even sports psychologists help for athletes. Um, my girlfriend was uh, a high level uh, sprint kayak athlete, and 
she wanted to see a therapist just for her own general mental mental health and and maintenance. And the sports psychologist she found was so focused on performance in sport that mm-hmm. it was not helping with her general mental health, which was probably actually the thing that probably would have helped her perform better um, rather than having such a narrow focus on performance. And I'm curious, Corey, like, does does that like resonate with you in terms of like what sort of help is available to um, professional athletes? Because like what Taylor was saying, I mean, you can't really go to somebody for your general mental health because that's seen as a weakness still. And when performance is, is the objective for people who are invested in you, um, it's not okay to be seen as being quote unquote weak because of yeah. that. I, you know what? I love both of those. The, I love all of it. And I'll tie it into this. So until we start seeing going to getting help as a strength, um, that's what it's going to be. Going to get help is like going to the gym for your body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like going and lifting weights. So your body is physically prepared, going and seeing a psychologist or a therapist. It's the same thing. You're going to strengthen your brain and you're going to strengthen your skills. I was a better player after I got help. Right. When I when I didn't when I wasn't uh, when I was sick, I wasn't able to train properly, wasn't able to eat properly, didn't sleep properly. Right. You can't you, you you're, you're basically just functioning. And I was still playing in the NHL. Yeah. So, right. So think of if that organization, if I wasn't afraid to go get help. Right. That you get help. You're actually a way I could train properly. I could eat properly. I could sleep properly. I was a way better goalie. Mm-hmm. Right. But after I got help um, and the, the cat was kind of out of the bag, I mean, nobody wanted me anymore. Right. Right. Because when you think of it, when you think about it, like, I remember as a kid thinking, you know, I, I had aspirations as a kid. I want to play in the NHL. I want to be a pro hockey player. And, and I, and, and you frame that as a, as, as a kid. And even as, even as an adolescent, when I was playing, you know, high level hockey and still at that, like on that leading edge, you're, you, you're framing what that job looks like as oh, I get to play hockey for a living. And then when you, and now, now that I'm in my thirties and I look at professional athletes in any sport, I go, this is the most full-time job. Every action that you take from the time you, even the, the, the time you spend with your head on the pillow to the, every morsel of food that you put in your mouth to the, the weights that you lift in the gym, to the way that you think and go about your day, like everything feeds into your ability to then go and do the job on the ice. Like everything is leading into that. And when, and when, when, when a, a link in that chain isn't optimized, like when you can't have, you know, a healthy relationship because of the, because of the mental health issues that you're going through, or you can't have a productive day in your train. Like all of that is going to feed into the way that you end up showing up on, on the ice. So it's no doubt that, you know, that, that was, you, you know, you were struggling in the performance aspect or, or that you, that you struggled more when you weren't getting help to when you were able to seek it. Well, and that's exactly it. So if you've got a pilot that's up in the air, um, you know, you should be encouraging all of your pilots to go to psychologists and psychiatrists mm-hmm. to strengthen themselves, right? Because <laughs> yeah. their brain, they're going to be, they're good enough to be up there already. Yeah. Imagine how good they're going to be if their brains are actually healthy. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I'm not saying that they're all, but we've all got anxiety. We've all got depression. When you learn how to deal with that stuff 
And like you said, the sports psychologists, hey, hats off. I know some great ones. I, I I love them. But that's their their job when they get hired, their their job is sports performance. Mm-hmm. So I can see why you know that, that would happen. But you know, you you should have on every organization, you should have, you know, if you want a sports performance psychologist, have one. Great. But you should also have the other option of just life, mm-hmm. right? Someone that's a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist of of life, right? Mm-hmm. And not everybody's going to have a severe mental illness. Like I, I, I'm, you know, but everybody feels anxiety, depression, and all that stuff. That's not tied to hockey. Mm-hmm. It's that stuff outside of hockey. So if I was an organization, I'd have both available. And and people say, well, why don't the NHL do more? They do. They have psychologists and psychiatrists. So they they a lot of them do. They do a great job. Um, and they get blamed a lot, but. It's really they they the resources are out there. Guys are afraid to use them. Mm-hmm. They're afraid yeah. that it's going to be a pipeline um, when it's not because it has to be confidential or that psychologist psychiatrist they'll lose their license, mm-hmm. right? But guys still don't see it that way. Yeah, it's so, so we, yeah. Go ahead. It, I was just going to say it's so interesting though. Like you you said, if if people want to go see psychologists for their health, then they should be. Um, able to do that. And I agree with that. I would, I would also even frame it like if people want to go just to optimize their health and not, not like even seek out something necessarily preventative, but like I started going to therapy a couple of years ago um, for no reason in particular, at at least not from my conscious perspective, there, there wasn't like a specific trauma that I wanted to dig into. Um, But going to therapy, I found out, Oh fuck, I have a ton of trauma from my yeah. past. And when I started to work through that, I started to feel, you know, a lot better about myself and, and my life. And this is coming from somebody who didn't think that there was an obvious reason for me to go, but now I go every month. Um, and, and I refer to it sometimes as quote unquote maintenance, but it's not maintenance. It's optimization. Like it, it's, um, I'm a way, um, I, I, it's funny because I was going to say I'm a way better version of myself, but uh, my therapist actually said, what if we tried not using better version of ourselves and just said more honest version of ourselves? And I think, I still think personally that an honest version of yourself, a more honest version of yourself is a better version of yourself. Um, but it's been incredibly helpful and and I encourage everybody I meet who obviously can you know, can afford it, um, but is willing to invest in it to go because it's been the most powerful thing that I've done in my entire life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a coach growing up. That's how I got to the NHL, right? I didn't get yeah. there because I went on the ice and I figured it out. Yeah. All of a sudden you're handed a baby, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, you should know what to do. Or or you're in a relationship. Yeah, we should know how to how to how to talk to each other right? <laughs> communicate. No, I mean those these are the experts. Use them if you can. Like and that's, it's, it's as, and especially as men, you know, we, we see it as, you know, something, well, what's wrong with you? You're going to therapy. What's wrong with you? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, strengthen my relationships. I'm trying to be a better dad. I'm trying to be a better friend. I'm trying to be a better partner. I'm trying to be a better version, version of me. And and here's another thing that I say in a lot of my talks guys is, and I'll have you because this is a, this is a segue to, you know, where, where in the dictionary does under the term man or masculinity say must suffer in silence. I, <laughs> I, I, I've yet to come across that. If you guys do let me know, right. Mm-hmm. 
You can still be a man and go do manly things and get help, right? There's no, why, why in society and why as, as men, we've been taught that, you know, being a man means suffering in silence. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that's it's it's such a, a uh, it's such a, uh, it's such a restrictive, we've, 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 we've made it such a restrictive definition. But honestly, it's a, it's a fucking cop out too, because the harder thing to do is to go ask for help because yeah. it takes courage to go and be vulnerable in front of another human being and say, Hey, I'm struggling with this thing. And so we say, you know, it's stronger or tougher to like bear the, you know, suffer grin and bear it or suffer through it. But the truth is, it's actually much more difficult to be vulnerable and say that you're struggling and go and find help. And, you know, the, the truth again is that you'll, you'll feel better after doing it. Yeah. And be, be better. a better person. <clears throat> yeah. And, and all, in all the, yeah. all the areas of your life. Corey, I want, I wanted to come back to, to your story because you, the thing that I, I found really fascinating is that like after three or four years of suffering and finally going to ask for help and then taking 10 more years to get treated and then 10 more years for the article to come out. Um, what was it that took so long? Like from your perspective, what was so slow about that process? Well, because OCD is, is a tough one to diagnose and it's, a, it, a, if you don't go to the right place, you can you can end up just spinning your wheels. You you don't get better, right? Like OCD is 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 very specific. And I tell people this: you don't go to the knee surgeon to get your shoulder fixed, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have OCD, you should go see an OCD specialist. If you have bipolar, you should go see a, a bipolar specialist. Now, there's great counselors and psychologists out there for general anxiety and social anxiety and all that stuff. But OCD is a very specific. Uh, treatment. So I, I did a treatment called ERP, exposure response prevention. It's like CBT on steroids. Uh, and it sucked. I'm not going to lie, but it, it's what kind of helped me with it. Well, it is what changed that, but I didn't know what I was looking for. Again, I wasn't educated in any of this. Mm-hmm. So you're throwing darts, going, seeing people and wondering why you're not getting any better. Right. Until finally I, I, I stumbled into a, a guy that I just looked on the internet um, and I, I, it was blind luck that I, I, a guy in Vegas did tons of OCD. Um, and then he was, he was the one that really got me out of it. So this is the education portion that needs to be done. And this is why it took so long was, you know, if you blow out your knee again, right. We know as human beings, well, I'm going to go see the knee surgeon. I'm not going to go see the heart doctor. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas something goes wrong with our brain. Well, where do I go? what do I do? Oh, this guy, I guess, I don't know. Someone said he's good, right? Oh, okay. So I'll go see him, but it's not the psychologist's fault, but here's, I do tell people too, just because you see one or two and something's not going or it's not working or whatever, go see a third, go see mm-hmm. a fourth, go see if you'll find somebody don't give up, right? It might take six, seven psychologists before you find someone that can really help you, but you have to keep searching and keep going because there will be somebody but unfortunately, with our system and mental health, um, you know, that's the that's what we need to shrink that timeline for people. Yeah, yeah. What what was it that led to you ultimately going to um, seek help? Was there was there like a breaking point? I was on my knees again. Like I was to the point where mental health is like you, you can't walk around for three years with a broken leg and just say, oh, hey, you know, nothing's happening over here. Right. I was trying to hide it. I was trying to run from it. I was trying to figure it out uh, by on my own because I, I mean, there was a, a there was a stigma and B, I didn't know what the hell was going on. 
right? I just knew something in my brain wasn't, and I just was hoping it would go away one day. Mm-hmm. So, but eventually mental health is like anything else. You got to get it fixed. Like you can't walk around with, you know, with heart disease and, and just pretend it's going to go away. Eventually you're going to have that heart attack, right? Same thing with mental health is, is that I tried to do that. And eventually, you know, I crashed and burned. And that's when I reached out for help. And and in, in all honesty, my thought process in reaching out for help was, all right, I got one last chance here. I'm going to reach out for help. And if this doesn't work, well, fuck it. I can always plan B, right? So that's how my brain was thinking. That's how sick I was, was that that plan B was a, was a good option if, if there was no help, right? Mm-hmm. And thankfully, a guy named Mike Bernstein, the trainer for the Canucks, um, he you know, he, he found me the help that, and I got diagnosed and, um, but yeah, I mean, that was my thought process was at that time I was really going to get it done if there wasn't, cause I couldn't live anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I was, I was debilitating panic attacks. I couldn't, I couldn't play. Right. I dropped 30 pounds. I was 145 pounds trying to play in the NHL. Oh my God. Wow. Teammates wow. Notice, right. Like my teammates are looking at me. I came out of the shower once and Marty Jelena looked at me and he's like, Hershey, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, cause I was 145 pounds. Right. And I was skin and bones. I didn't say anything. I just kept going, but yeah. now it was physical right now. You can see it. I couldn't hide it anymore. And, wow. and take us through, take us through the contrast of the, the success that's happening, the success that is happening and that you've had in your, in your playing career versus the, the versus the, like the reality that you are living in your, in, in your mind with OCD and anxiety. Like, I mean, you know, lifting the Stanley cup, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, that's, if you're a Canadian kid, I mean, that's like put on the pedestal as like the ultimate thing that could ever happen in your, in your life and you're experiencing it. And at the same time, you're going through this, you're, you're, you know, you're sort of living this other, this other reality in, in your mind, like bring us through what, what, what experiencing those two realities simultaneously is like. Yeah. Well, you know, so, I mean, just for reference, like I was the third goalie too. So, you know, I, I, they, they won the cup. I, I <laughs> no, don't, yeah, don't tell yourself short. Cup, but, uh, no, I have all the respect for, I saw what those guys went through and how they won, man, it was incredible. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I drank out of the cup, all that ever since, you know, you're a kid, you dream of that. Okay. So within two months I had an Olympic silver medal and I drank out of the Stanley cup. Right. So two things that every kid, Canadian kid, growing up should be the greatest moments of their life. And I'll be honest, I could give two fucks because I just, I was so sick. And two weeks after drinking out of the Stanley cup, I made that first suicide attempt. So that's the thing that people don't understand is that it doesn't matter if your health and your mental health are gone. None of that stuff matters, right? We shame people that have money. Oh, you have money. What, you know, why are you going to see a psychologist? Why, why is, why, what problems do you have? Well, when you don't, when your mental health and, and you're struggling like that, money, money, you know, none of that stuff matters. All that matters is your health. And, you know, I remember, do you guys remember when Tuka Rask left the bubble there a few years ago? Yeah. Um, and he got just absolutely, you know, roasted because he left. And what do you do? You got, you're making 5 million. What are you doing? Mm. Well, we have no idea what was going on, you know, with his family at home and all that. And money didn't matter. Right. It doesn't it doesn't if his if his mental health is bad or his wife's is bad or something is going on like 
we're just shaming people into burying them even further into the carbon. What's wrong with you? You drank out of the Stanley Cup. You have an Olympic silver medal. You've got this great life. Well, I'm having debilitating panic attacks, right? The Stanley Cup is not get rid of my debilitating panic attacks or that silver medal. Those are material things. Yeah. Right? So like we need we, to encourage people, not discourage. Simone Biles from uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, right. yeah. Like mean, we we've 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 sort of like we've. I feel like historically, what's really interesting that it's got, the thought I'm having now is that historically we've we've sort of always had this um, kind of like quote in cursive writing somewhere in some you know inspirational quote that happiness isn't doesn't come from material things. Like we've sort of like oh. There's sort of, you kind of understand that philosophically, even though that's the, that, that ends up being the pursuit ultimately for, for, for most unless people. Unless it's golf clubs, new golf clubs. Right. Unless it's new, <laughs> unless it's new golf clubs or for me, a brand new, a new, new bike day is always, is always, is always a, a point of happiness. But, but we, but we've sort of like understood this, but, but we still quite haven't wrapped our head around the fact that sadness and depression and anxiety isn't materially driven either. Like it's not that, that having the money and having the, having, you know, the name on the cup or the, or the silver or the, the, the Olympic medal is not, it's not material. Like you, you, that your, your, your mental health is not determined by the material things in your life and mm-hmm. that it is, it is something, it is something else. And it's, it's, it, there's not a direct correlation between the success that you might be having in your career or the money that you might be making and the the feelings that you that you have in your heart or the or the the experiences that you're having in your mind. It's interesting though because like like I think I think what is the what is ultimately correlated to happiness is um, human connection, and I would say that would then build an argument for the fact that having lots of money is actually correlated to a lack of happiness because it's harder to connect with people, mm-hmm. and also when you are feeling down. People don't feel bad for you because they're like that. Well, that person has money or yeah, fame yeah. or success in you these got the ways. Thing so, that like, I want. so therefore, I'm not going to feel bad for them when they're struggling. And and I mean, what a like shitty dark thing mm. to think. But I I would think that that's partly true. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Growing up, I, I, I completely, I completely see the the things that that occur or the the sort of um, the environment that happens in sport where you need to be, where you sort of feel like you need to be a certain version of yourself, and you need to put on this, you need to put on this hat that is specific to what you feel like people want from you. But at the same time, especially in my in my like adolescent and teenage playing years when I was playing, uh, when I was playing midget and junior at the same time as that stereotype seemed to be somewhat true. I also felt like my teammates were some of the people that I could be the most 
open and honest with at least some of them. Um, not, maybe not everybody, but I always had like a few people that I was like, I am the, I'm the truest version of myself for you. And I like, I kind of lay, I'll lay it out on the, all out on the line for you. Um, even though as a whole, I see myself as kind of restricting my true self, you know, to fit this mold of, of the hockey player or, or whatever. Like, what was your experience with, um, teammates and, and, you know, the community and the human connection aspect in, in sport as you were, you know, dealing with all of this? Yeah. I think, well, there's, there's a lot to that. And when I, you know, when I played junior hockey, I played in Camels, I, I had a great place to play, right? They, they, it's why we won so much. It's Camels won three Memorial Cups in four years because we, they gave us a little bit of rope, but they also, you know, were very um, cognizant of, of turning us into good young men. So not every organization in junior hockey is like that. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what, those players that I played junior hockey with are still some of my best friends. They're the guys I grew up with. Um, there's a lot of things when we're younger that, you know, it's, there's kind of a war on masculinity that I'm not really, I don't really like because mm-hmm. I think it's, um, I think it's gone in a direction of, of you can't be this and you can't be that. I, I think what's missed in all of it is, is we're just, we're teaching, we're, we're, we're not teaching men in how to be men in the proper direction, which right. is you can still be a man. I'm still a man. Like I'm, I'm still playing hockey and I could, if I want to get in a fight, I can get in a fight, right? I mean, <laughs> ice, get my ass kicked or you can shoot a gun or chop, whatever, whatever, fix cars, you know, that's, those are physical things to being a man. But, you know, we're also trying to take away from men telling them, you know, you have to be this and you have to be that and all this. The only thing that I, I see with being a man that, that we're not teaching is, is the suffering in silence, right? Like, why, you know, that, that's that's where we need to to go is, is that to teach men that you, it's still okay to be a dude. It's still okay to be strong. It's still okay to be tough. It's not okay to be an asshole, right? Mm-hmm. That's That's one thing. Um, but it's, you don't have to suffer in silence. And when I played in junior hockey, yeah, the, I mean, you, I think everywhere we have to put on a little bit of a mask. We all do. Right. I mean, at work, like you, you don't want your police officer crying in the middle of the street, right? He, he's got to put on it and he's got to, he's got to be tough because there's people trying to take advantage of him. But who are you at home? Mm-hmm. Right. Who are, who are t- you have to, and to, to keep that mask on when you're at home? Well, no, that, that's, that's where you're going to hurt things. That's where you're going to hurt a relationship. Um, you know, uh, that, that's what, that's what I think is, is there has to be a separation between, mm. you know, work and personal life as yeah. far as who you are. And that so, doesn't mean you, yeah, being a man doesn't mean being an asshole either. Right? Yeah, yeah. Something that you might, uh, a, a, a book that you might, uh, that might resonate with you just on this topic and, um, um, is uh, well, actually, a few books now. A, a good friend of ours, Justin Baldoni, is a great filmmaker as well. He, he's written a few books on on um, on masculinity and sort of the the shortcomings of the way that we've ultimately ended up defining masculinity and put it in this box that yeah. excludes all of these like very important human characteristics. And um, and he talks a lot about sort of just let's in, instead of instead of instead of this war on masculinity. Let's let's start to tear down the walls around that we've built around what that term is and and broaden it out in this way that invites so many more aspects of of being a person into what masculinity is so that we don't have to think that you know being masculine is bad 
or 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 having feminine or having feminine characteristics included in your masculinity is bad and all this stuff. So it's, he's written a few books on that topic now, and, and I feel like for for you and for, and, for, yeah. and for for our listeners, if you haven't checked out some of Justin Baldoni's books, like uh, very um, like very interesting commentary on how we see the word masculinity and the things that we include in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Corey, I wanted to ask about like th- thinking of that and and other people's definitions or ideas of what we should be um, when you're when you're in the sort of public spotlight, whether you're performing as an athlete or an artist or or have any sort of celebrity status, um, obviously you get scrutinized by by people and there's going to be negative feedback. And I, I'm curious, when you suffer from a, a mental illness, like do those things matter to you and do they sort of amplify the experience you're going through or do you just not give a fuck at all about what people are saying during that time? Yeah, no, you know what? It's um, it's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you this. I have a story. So um, last year I did five games with John John Garrett. John Garrett got COVID, and I did five games on TV of color with John Shorthouse for the Vancouver Canucks. Right. So Twitter blew up. You know, people are uh, you know, and, I, and I'm reading Twitter because I think I'm doing pretty good, right? And a lot of good comments. You know, a thousand good comments. Some lady tweeted. Um, if I have to listen to Corey Hirsch call one more game, I'm going to stab myself in the fucking face. Right? <laughs> Welcome I to called, Twitter. <laughs> I called my mom. I made sure it wasn't her. She swears. <laughs> but, so for me, I I can handle that shit. I, I don't care. Right? I've been booed by 20,000 people right? multiple <laughs> times. But here's the thing. Our kids can't handle that shit. Like you, mm. you they, we need to be able to not use social media. And I say this, you got two choices out there. You can use social media as a weapon or you can use it for good. Mm. I mean, that's up to you. Yeah. And if you're the type of person that wants to use it as a weapon, well, shame on you, right? Mm. There's so many great things that can come out of social media. Uh, but for whatever reason, we have people that want to want to vent and, and, and on that. So between the 2007 and 2017, suicide rates went up 56% between the ages of 10 and 24. Fucking 10-year-olds killing themselves, right? Wow. Well, when did social media start, right? Phones, right? Kind of around that, right? So there is a significant impact on social media and mental health. Um, and that's why I say to people, like, you know, you can use it. It's your choice, man. You want, If you want to rip apart that fourth liner on the Canucks, um, you know, because he sucks or he's shitty or he's that. Do you know how good you have to be to play in the National Hockey League to even sit on the bench? Yeah. Like, do, you know, do you know how good you have to be? I do oh, now. Okay. I didn't as a kid. Now, right. I, now I look at it and I go, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, have you ever got up there with a guy that plays on the fourth line in the NHL? Like They are good. <laughs> so, you know, and it's... And it, why say something hurtful about somebody? Again, that's just a weapon, um, mm. you know, and use it for good, man. Yeah. Because uh, you got to monitor your kids' social media. I don't care if they balk at it or not, man. We got You got to know because uh, um, that's another route that it could be a very positive vehicle or it can be a very negative one as well. There's mm. a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, 
there's a lot of data that backs up that backs up that sentiment there that there's a that, that all those correlations with um, mental health suicide rates in correlation with um, social me- the, the advent of social media and the rise of phone usages amongst young kids. Jonathan, uh, somebody named Jonathan Haidt has a has a, a, a really interesting book called The Coddling of the American Mind that points to um, that 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 looks at a lot of research that's dug into that. And it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's very, uh, it's, there, there's a strong correlation between those two things. And, um, and I completely agree. Social Mm -hmm. media is social media can be, can, can, uh, can be the, uh, you know, the, the angel or the devil on your shoulder, depending on, depending on your understanding of it. And depending on, I think, I think a big thing now as, as, people who have grown up with it, you know, Brian and I were in our early thirties and we kind of, we remember this time before the internet, but technology and the internet play a big role in our, in our, in our adolescence and in our adulthood is, is understanding now. I, I just, I had a daughter eight months ago and I'm, and that's a huge thing on my mind. Like, how do I teach this, this young, this young kid in, in whatever form social media is going to take when she is, you know, 10, 12, 15, 16 years old, how am I going to teach her about that? And how, how can I lay the foundation for her to use that for the, for, for the way that it can be beneficial? Cause it can be like, I don't, I don't want to be the, per, I don't want to be the, the parent that says that it's just, it's just the devil and that yeah. you shouldn't use it at all and disconnect her from her peers um, but I also, uh, you know, worry about the exposure to the, to the, to the hard, to the, the really shitty aspects of it. And I think educating, educating our kids around, around that, um, is really important. Um, well, and I guess, I, here, I'll, I'll just yeah. say one thing to that. So yeah. what I say to my kids, cause they're older, right? My kids are 24, 22. So they're right in that. If, if it has emotion attached to it, you don't send it right. Anger, sadness, happiness, what, whatever, if it has emotion attached to it, you, you don't send it because what happens then is then you're sending something out there that can be misconstrued or taken, a, taken the wrong way. Or if, especially if it's anger, right? You're pissed and you're going to tweet something. Well, right. It's probably better because you're not, it's probably better to not. So that, that's what I always try to, I try to use that guideline mm-hmm. that if I have any sort of emotion attached to it, that I don't, I don't do it. So I don't know if that helps or if that's. No, I think, mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting um, sort of like litmus test to, uh, to have to pass to, to, to consider what, whatever you're putting out there. Mm-hmm. Also, it's just like, it's, it's so interesting how conversations um, with kids and with their friends have, have moved to text-based conversations where it's so hard to read into what somebody really means. And, uh, and like my, my thing is like, if you want to have an emotional conversation with someone, then you should either one, pick up the phone and call them or see them in person Mm -hmm. because that greatly reduces the opportunity of things being misunderstood. Um, it's also funny though. Like I've been, I've been working with my therapist to stop worrying about what other people might think about what I'm saying, if if my intentions are are pure in what I'm saying, and I'm being honest about my needs, then I can't manage other people's emotions too. And so, I mean, I'll I'll have these conversations in person when I have to have them, uh, rather than sending an email or a text. Hard, but, hard balance to strike, but ideal. It, but like if you if yeah. you can do both, if you can ignore the if you can if you can be truthful, put that out there, and also ignore 
the shit. Easier that said than done. Easier said than done for sure, but 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 definitely ideal. Yeah. Um, Corey, I wanted to, I want to ask you uh, before we before we wrap up here, and I feel like we've we've sort of been touching on this a few times throughout the show. Is like in your experience of dealing with OCD and anxiety for you know the last uh, twenty plus years, and knowing everything that you know now, what do you think are the ways in which we need to educate the younger generations on, on mental health so that, uh, you know, I think you gave a wonderful example of the conversation that, that you've had with your daughter that allowed her to, to say, you know, I, I'm coming to you because you've laid the foundation for me to feel comfortable with this, with coming to you and talking to you about my mental health. What are the, what are the, kind of like the ways in which we should, we should be having that conversation with the younger generations about, about educating around yeah, mental no, health? That, there's two ways. One is through school. But, you know, that there's there's so much red tape with that. Yeah. Um, I've gone to do talks in schools where parents have pulled their kids out of talks because I talk about suicide and they're like, well, if he talks about it, I give my kid an idea. Well, uh-huh. it's been proven that if you talk about suicide with your kids and make it and not have it under the carpet, it actually prevents them from going in that direction. Wow, right? that's astonishing. Yeah, so, the, so, the, so the idea that, that so, so the feedback is if they, you're... Like inception, like, like you're, you're planting you're, a you're seed. Planting a seed. Wow. Well, but here's the thing. So, let, let, if someone's already suicidal and we're we're shaming them to not talk about it, yeah. what do you think is going to happen? Right? Yeah. They feel even worse. We're going to put them. No, you need to bring it out in the open. You need to have that conversation and let them know that you know what, it's okay. That it's okay to think that, but there's a better option, right? Mm. As human beings, we think about a lot of different things, right? And so to shame someone for having those types of thoughts well you know that's just going to bury them even further and what we need to do is bring it out in the open and say hey you know what i know you're not feeling great i know what kind of thoughts you're having and all that um you know validate it love them and hey let's get some help because we know there's a better option than that right rather than don't think that you know that's an awful thing to think you know you have this great life uh, why are you thinking that way? That's not going to bring them out of suicide. That's going to bury them even further under the, you know, under the yeah. ground and yeah. make them feel even worse about themselves. So that's one thing, you know, we need to stop making suicide a, a taboo word mm-hmm. because it actually shows that it prevents. But as far as your question goes, you have to have those conversations. You have to be a parent where the child feels comfortable to be able to come to you and talk about that stuff. And you're not going to judge them. You're not going to try and you're not going to try and solve their problem because I'm not qualified. Someone comes to me with anxiety and depression. I'm not qualified to solve their problem. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist or a doctor, but here's what I can do. I can say, Hey, you know what? I can empathize with them. That sucks. Let's go to the doctor. Let's, you know, let's figure this out and not judge them. Right. If, if someone, if my child came to me with a broken leg, I wouldn't say, well, yeah, you broke your leg, you know, go here, do this, put two splints on it. Me trying to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm qualified to fix yeah. it. I take it to the doctor. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's the same thing in your home. Be that person so that, you know, kids can come to you. And maybe, maybe, maybe you have to be that person so that their friends feel comfortable coming to you. Right. Yeah. Like be that open, non-judgmental person that somebody can talk to because you, you, you see, I have a picture of me drinking of the Stanley Cup. Like I said, and two weeks later, like I got a smile on my face. I got everything. Um, two weeks later, I tried to take my own life after that, right? So mm-hmm. my point of that is, is that you don't know. And if you can be that non-judgmental person, you, you might save somebody's life. 
Mm -hmm. right? You, You really might by just letting them know that you're someone safe to talk to. And also when you share some of your own stories, that's when other people will come open up to you. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when you say, Hey, I went through COVID, you know, or, or like when you said, you know, I, I go see a therapist. Right. Now I feel comfortable talking to you about going to see therapists and that, right. I feel comfortable talking to you guys because you both have, have shown that you're open to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. That's, that's how you're going to get people to talk to. Yeah. Corb, before we um, wrap and to give you another chance to, to plug the book, but to ask a question about it as well, I'm, I'm curious, uh, like in writing the book and going into details about these past events. Um, did you find that process to be therapeutic? Was it was it the opposite of, of that in any way? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I wouldn't call it therapeutic. Uh, I would say um, I I still haven't read the final version of the book. So I I I had a guy write write it, then I rewrote the book. In, in my own perspective. And then I hired what's called a punch writer. So they, the punch writer is somebody that is able to, to really be descriptive and, and bring the words together, right? And bring it, bring the book together uh, at the end to make it what it is, because I, I, you know, I'm not that skilled of a writer. So once he finished the book, and it's the same guy that wrote my Players Tribune article, um, he just crushed it. And I, I will probably never read it. Um, because it's, I mean, it's, it's all my pain, right. It's in, it's in, it's in in a book and I just don't want to go there. Right. Because I've had enough therapy. That's my past. Uh, I'd like to move forward, but what the book is for is for people that are going through that. Right. Look, you know, it's, it's everything that I happened to me. It's everything. This is what to look for. This is what happened. Um, and that it gets better if you get the help, that's really the book, but that's it's not for me anymore. It's for everybody else. So yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of why it's out there. Therapeutically, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that um, because, like I said, I, when I when I got the copy of the book, I was like, I'm really proud of the book, but it was very confusing when I looked at it because, like I said, all my pains in it, right? So yeah. it's kind of a confusing feeling. Um, you know, it's a really good question. It's a tough one to answer. Mm-hmm. But the book isn't for me. It's it's really for, you know, if 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 it saves a life, great one, then it was worth writing. I, I, I think that's the the perfect answer um, because I imagine that it would be like painful to revisit some of that stuff. But knowing that you wrote that for other people who are going through that, it it, it makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah thanks. Well, for and I can I can go write a book with that. I've had so many great things happen too, right? And I can yeah. go I can go write a book about that. <laughs> But I mean, you know, it's just, it so happens that that yeah. book is is to help other people. So you write and you put all everything in it, all your pain and everything in it, right? But so I want people out there know too that fuck, I, I've had a great ride too. Like I've I've had some unbelievable things happen to me both ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, Corey Hirsch, um, thank you so much for for taking the time to have the conversation with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, his book, The Save of My Life, My Journey Out of the Dark. Uh, take a second to plug yourself, pl- uh, plug the book. Where can people find it and where can people stay up to date with uh, the good work that you're doing? Yeah, you can find Indigo anywhere, chapters, wherever you buy your books, right? Amazon, all that good stuff. Blindsided, you can find it on any of your podcasts. Uh, my website, CoreyHirsch.com. Uh, Instagram, Corey Hirsch 72, 
Uh, Twitter, Corey Hirsch. Just tweet nice things, please. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, are you listening? <laughs> nice things only. Uh, uh, thanks. Yeah. yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, I do public speaking, too. So I've been doing a lot of corporate speaking and all that. So if, if there's anybody out there looking for a, a good hockey player, mental health speaker that likes dad jokes. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Thank Sweet. you so thanks, much, Corey. Corey. We really appreciate it. Awesome, guys. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And, of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.